welcome to the podcast of the Vine Church in Fullerton, California. For more information, visit thevineoc.com. Just a little side note, some people might wonder, where where do you get this combination of scriptures? Well, there's a a thing called the lectionary that a lot of groups like the Anglican Church use, and it gives every week, in fact, every day if you want it, every week like five different passages of Scripture that you can select from. You can select multiple ones. And so for someone like me, it's as though God is saying, what do you think of these? Can you do something with these this week? Can you find what I'm saying to the church this week? It's It's kind of a wonderful adventure. I mean, left to my own devices, we would never get out of Matthew. And so it's actually a very good thing. So that's, that's how that works uh, with something called the lectionary. And um, now, by the way, when, with the, when I was first starting to preach from a lectionary at a different church, I thought you had to preach from all five. And it was a 15-minute fi- sermon. And so you got to cram a lot. Soon I learned, no, you get to pick one or two. And it's mellow. Well, on an entirely unrelated note, my favorite brand of jeans are Levi's, i got to say. And this is not a paid announcement. Uh, And the reason for that is back when I was in high school, if you dared, dared to step foot on your campus wearing jeans that were not Levi's, you were dropped into the outer darkness of uncoolness, and you would never get out of it. Never. Um, And so it had to be... uh, Explaining that to my mother about why we had to spend money on Levi's as opposed to going to Sears and getting the cheap ones. She just couldn't understand. Why aren't these just as good? She never quite understood, but she went with it until I had to buy my own. This is back when Levi's cost five bucks, by the way, if you can imagine, um, back when the earth was still cooling. But, you know, that, that imprints you. You know, it certainly has imprinted me after all these years. I can't imagine wearing jeans other than Levi's, you know. But... Conformity to social norms can be an incredible pressure, can't it? Uh, especially when it's, when it's the result of peer pressure. And, and sure, we often think of peer pressure as what I just described. That's just something teenagers put up with, you know, whether it's clothing or whether it's dangerous stuff. Peer pressure is a real thing, but that's kind of the realm of teenagers, except that's not really true. Everybody is impacted by that. We look at what other people are doing. And we, we, we get drawn into that, into these social, social conformities. Some of you might have done that as a young person, and you heard your parents say, well, if everybody was jumping off of a cliff, would you do it too? And you would go, no. But in your mind, you would say, yes, if the result was coolness. It was very clear. Um, but, but really, measuring ourselves against others is something that impacts everybody. It's a, it's a malady that doesn't just impact teenagers, it impacts everybody. It's, it's individuals, it's communities, it can even impact a nation. In, and in part, that is what is happening in our story from 1 Samuel today. Uh, there's this outcry from the people about wanting to move away from national leadership that came from prophets and judges in priests, and to move toward a model of leadership that looked like what all the other nations had. The other nations had kings. And so let's get us a monarchy, was the thinking here. And now, up, up to this point, the, the people of Israel 
relied on their leaders to echo the voice of God for them. And it's not that a king would be entirely unable to do that, but the Lord tells Samuel, well, you better warn the people that there's going to be a price to be paid for this. There's going to be military conscription. There will be indentured servitude. There's going to be slavery. The people's lives and their very bodies will no longer be their own. They will belong to the king. And the king will ultimately demand a very expensive brand of loyalty, and it will not always serve the people well, nor is it what God has intended for Israel. Israel was supposed to be God's priestly people who would bring blessing to the world, not a people who just looked like everybody else. But the people say, well, we don't care. We don't care about that. We're willing to accept the price. And they're willing to accept the demands that are going to come with having a king, having a monarchy. And apparently they have forgotten the stories of Israel's enslavement in Egypt under another king, the one called the Pharaoh. Uh, But of course, that's old news now. And who cares about history anyway, right? The Lord will give them what they demand, but they are going to be on their own if that's what they really want. I mean, when you stop to think about it, isn't that an awful thing? Uh, God gives them what they are demanding, what they want no matter what, and then says, well, okay, but you're going to have to sort out the consequences all on your own. I mean, that's really a theme that runs all through the Bible. Uh, When you look at the story in the Gospel of Luke that Jesus tells about the lost son, the prodigal son, there's that theme Once again, the son gets what he demands and suffers the consequences for it. But, and the Old Testament itself ends with the Lord reminding the people of their unfaithfulness to him. But even when God lets his people bring turmoil and harm among themselves, he returns to them with a promise to redeem them. After all, they are still his people. They are still, as he has called them, like a firstborn son to God. They are the very family of God. A a broken family, to be sure, but still a, a family nonetheless. But in the meantime, they are going to experience the pain of their demands. Now, the demand of a king will not only set up Israel to be a competitor with the other surrounding nations, but it will also solve the problem of figuring out where the next ruler is going to come from. Uh, Now, up to this point, Israel's leaders didn't necessarily come by by hereditary succession. Uh, Samuel's sons and Eli's sons before him, they all turned out to be bums. And and they were not fit to serve in the roles that their fathers had had served in. Uh, Samuel himself, while he was mentored by Eli, he wasn't Eli's son. There was not a hereditary succession going on here. But once you have a king... You know what's coming next. Once the king passes on, the son is going to take over. That's just how it works. You know exactly how this is going to play. When Queen Elizabeth passes on, Charles is going to be in charge. Charles in charge. Um, (laughs) Sorry. When when Charles goes on to glory, it'll be William. There's, There's no question in Britain who the monarchs are going to be down the line. It's a very easy thing for them to sort out. And that same predictability would become a value for Israel even when the sons of the kings turned out to be no good. 
And, and in a way, it ensured, at least in the minds of the people, that the nation would live eternally through the succession of the kings. As long as there was a king on the throne, as long as there were children in line, Israel would remain forever intact, or so it would seem. Now, in our minds, it might seem kind of strange that that people would transfer their well-being into the hands of one man and his subsequent heirs. But nations that favor dictatorial rule do that all the time in our world. You read about this in the news all the time that this goes on. I mean, even in places like the U.S., where our top political leaders are elected for terms and not for life, uh, people very often will pin their hopes on a single candidate, hoping that the next one is going to be that strong one that will set all things right and bring new life to a nation, as if one person could actually do that. Well, God had set up things in Israel so that the people would hear his voice through prophets and priests and judges. And now they would hear the voices of their kings, voices that would often put royal self and national interest as priorities over hearing from God. And they would soon lose sight of the priorities that God had for them and enter into the world of international competition. And it was a game they were never destined to play. And in the end, they would lose everything. Now, ironically, even after that loss, they would still have their kings, but it would be the kings of the nations that had overtaken them, kings that had sent their people into exile. When we're dealing with God, getting what we want is not always a good thing. Caving into social norms and peer pressure can be very costly. But it isn't costly in terms of, necessarily costly in terms of disaster or military defeat. Sometimes it's costly just because it misses a deeper, more important story that social conventions only hint at. When Jesus' family members came to take him home because the local people thought that Jesus had just gone nuts, lost his mind, they were giving into a form of peer pressure that sought to relegate Jesus to the confines of his biological family. That's the place where, where the family might remove Jesus from the public eye, nurse him back to some form of mental health, and get him to stop bothering everybody with all of this casting out of demons and stuff that he was doing. If there's a problem with someone, then just let the family deal with it. So the thinking goes. The priority has to be pushed over to the family of origin. But Jesus reprioritizes the idea of family by looking around at those attending to his words and calling those people his family. Now, it would be wrong for us to say that in in making this claim that, that Jesus was somehow disparaging his own family or all other nuclear families... Uh, Instead, we we see that Jesus, he criticizes the religious leaders for not caring for their own aging parents. And even as he was dying on the cross, he he looked down at John and said, take care of my mother. So Jesus understood the, the nature of that level of family. However, Jesus pushes against social norms and he reframes the whole idea of family. 
And because Jesus never caved in to peer pressure, he planted the seeds that would soon sprout and be called the body of Christ, the renewed family of God. You know, for quite some time now, um, it's been especially true here in the United States, uh, Christian leaders and even some politicians have called for the strengthening of the family as really the antidote to pretty much everything. Crime, drugs, gang affiliation, and so on. And while the strengthening of family units is, is clearly important, the emphasis too often would sideline the struggles that are faced by single parents, by, by homes that were racked with poverty, those who are being victimized by other family members, even ignoring systemic problems that create all kinds of issues in our society. The ideal of a strong and loving nuclear family is truly one to hope for, but the reality is always more complex than the whole ideal would suggest. And the ideal also risks ignoring the priority of the first family, the body of Christ. Thank you. Some years ago, I, I ran across an article about um, three pastors who were uh, on a panel. They were speaking at a conference that had something to do with family. I don't recall exactly what it was. But a debate came up between two of the pastors, two of the pastors who happened to be white, and they began debating about abortion versus adoption. And one of them said that abortion needed to be considered when the alternative is a child born into difficult circumstances, like poverty. The other pastor argued for adoption, so that the life of the child was not eliminated and another family could be blessed by that adoption process. Now, one thing that those two pastors had in common, whether they realized it or not, was that their individual solutions both did away with a problem that people would no longer face. But there was a third pastor on that panel. He was an African-American pastor, and he offered them this story. He said, in our community, a 14-year-old girl became pregnant and was abandoned by her family, kicked, kicked out of the house. And uh, she had nowhere to go, and so she came to our church. I asked a retired couple in our church if they would agree to take her in. And they said that they would be happy to do that. Now, the child has since been born, and now this couple is raising the baby and the mother. He said, that's how we do it. I've always been struck by that statement. He didn't engage in the argument the other two were having. He just said, that's how we do it. You know, others, including those in the Christian community, may do something that lines up with certain social convention. But we in the body of Christ, we in the family of Jesus, do things that very often push against what is considered acceptable and efficient. One of the fathers of the early church long ago observed that it was not uncommon for, for people in the ancient Greco-Roman world to abandon their unwanted infants outside the walls of the city at night. Um, and the reasoning was that either the gods will rescue them or some kind traveler will rescue the child and relieve us of the responsibility. And if something bad happens to the child, it's not our fault. The gods have let us down or the kind traveler has let us down. 
when in reality it was a wild animal usually that took the child away, but at least you could blame the wild animal and not yourself. But this writer said, Jews and Christians, we don't do that. That's not our practice. In fact, Jews and Christians were known to comb the area outside of the city at night looking for these abandoned infants, taking them into their homes and raising them as their own children. In other words, no matter how everyone else is doing it, this is how we do it. The Church of Jesus, the body of Christ, has too often over the centuries been lured into embracing all kinds of social conventions instead of recognizing their uniqueness as God's people for the sake of the world. But that Spirit-filled uniqueness is what has catapulted people into all kinds of ministry contexts all over the world. You know, I have to say, I've really seen this uniqueness since I've been here with you at the Vine. Going on 10 months, I might add. <laughs> but I have. Um, even before I was, I was here as your pastor, uh, when people in cities across the nation have called for ends to homelessness by just getting people out of town, people at the Vine have joined with other Christians in the community to bring refreshment and meals and friendship and love to those in our community who lack a place to live. And while many people who suffer from desperate illness find themselves completely alone in the world, some folks at the Vine have come alongside those suffering people to care for them when no one else would do that. Now, hopefully, in the next few months, a, a new full-time pastor will come to the Vine, and that person will come not as a strong man, not as a king, but rather as one to lead the church in the way of Jesus. But the new pastor will not step into a void the space that the new pastor will find is one that's populated by people who understand their uniqueness in the world as followers of Jesus. The vine is a community of people who, when others might seek a convenient and efficient way of doing life together, will claim something else. We'll say, but this is how we do it. Now, I'm not saying we're all perfect here. I mean, I think you're all wonderful, but I don't think we're all perfect. Uh, we know better than that, but I do see much that reflects the spirit of Christ here. I do. I see so much that is the, that the shining of the light of God's desires on the world around us, and you need to know that. But that's always been the call to God's people, to be that shining light, and not just in theory. We are called to be that light in the demonstration of God's desires and intentions for the world. It doesn't mean that, that we ignore or don't care about happening, what's happening in the world around us. To the contrary, we should care so much that we say, in response to God, this is how we do it. Even if the rest of the world goes a different direction. And as we put our hands to the work that God's already doing in the world, it becomes a work that can be seen through our faithfulness to God. It becomes a light that shines in the darkness. 
I'm sure that we all recognize how tough this last year and a half, and yeah, it's been a year and a half pretty much, how, how tough it's been and continues to be for, to some degree. It's been difficult for, for individuals, it's been tough for families, for businesses, and it's been tough for churches. And even now, as churches are struggling to come together again, people are concerned and are wondering what things are going to look like going forward. But as painful as this time has been, it's also opened up an opportunity for ask ourselves to ask ourselves some very important questions. Like, whose is the voice that guides our shared life? Is it the voice of our preferred politicians? Is, is it the voice of our favorite news outlets? Like ancient Israel, do we think we need some kind of a king to save the day, to fight our battles on our behalf? Or is it the voice, the voice that guides us, the voice of God, the one who speaks to us through scripture of the faithfulness of Jesus and who enlivens us by the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit? Jesus identified his first family as those who are submitted to the will of God, the God whose desires and intentions were demonstrated by Jesus. And that family, that first family, is our family as well. The family of Jesus is unique because it is not restricted by the boundaries of biology, the boundaries of DNA that would just limit its identity. It's a family that loves one another, but not one that isolates in order to keep the comfortable chemistry stable. It's a family that is constantly adopting children who will become a new family that is in Christ. It's a family that changes and it grows as time goes on, but it remains a family that is guided and shaped by the Spirit of God. After all the disasters that hit ancient Israel, many may have thought that, that God had left them in the lurch, that God had just abandoned them, but he hadn't. And after our own difficult 18 months, God's been with us. We would be wrong to believe that God is only with us when everything feels like it's going smoothly. But God has been with us, and God has not abandoned us. He is with us now. Do we really believe that? I, I so hope that we do. That things may be different going forward for many who cherish their Christian communities, including us. But God's with us, and we can trust his voice to be the one that will guide us into a future that is not yet written. Let's pray. God, you know our struggles. You know our weaknesses. You know the pressures that come upon us to conform to all kinds of conventions. But Lord, we say to you that we desire to be truly your people. A people 
who seek to hear your voice before any other voice is allowed to speak. And we come before you right now and we we bring to you that which you already know about us, our, our fears and our concerns, our insecurities, all of those things that are so common to our life. And we lay them before you, knowing that you hear us, that you are with us, that you have not abandoned us, and that you are guiding us. And we say, God, that we put our trust in you. Amen.